of God wherever he goes. Well, it is National Youth Pastor Preaching Day, and uh, I have a lot of friends who are youth pastors, so this is going out for them, uh, and that's who we're committed to for today. So, um, Oh, perfect, the slides are there now. Um, the Christmas story doesn't end with the birth of Christ. And it might be a little bit weird that as we wrapped up our Christmas series uh, at our Christmas Eve services this past Monday, um, that we continue on to the 30th, and when I was originally challenged to... Uh, to bring the word on National Youth Pastor Preaching Day. Uh, we planned our whole series in November, and we went, oh, we did everything, and then I went, well, what's happening on the 30th? And a couple weeks later, they went, oh, we thought we already asked you. <laughs> so we got it done, but uh, it's been exciting to dig into the story and to look at uh, how Christmas plays out beyond the birth of Jesus and what parts of the narrative that we didn't get to uh, touch on as part of our series through this past month. And so today, as we go into the story of the wise men, I'm just really excited to uh, dig into that. So oftentimes, we look at the Christmas story, and we see this building sense of anticipation for the birth of Christ, and then we jump right into the ministry. And so the Gospel of Mark starts with uh, John the Baptist, and then goes right to Jesus' baptism. Uh, the book of John skips from Jesus' arrival on earth right into his ministry, uh, but there's actually 30 years between the birth of Jesus and the start of his ministry. We have Jesus being presented at the temple. We have stories of John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, we have Jesus as a boy in Jerusalem. We have Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to Egypt. And of course, we have the story of the wise men. And I truly believe the story of the wise men is one of the most misunderstood in Scripture. Uh, and if you don't believe me, I'm just going to ask you two questions. And if you get them, then you're probably further ahead than most of us. But uh, how many wise men were there? We're not sure. Okay, I heard that one. I heard a couple people say three, so okay. Uh, and how long after Jesus' birth did they arrive? Two. Okay, you guys are caught up. That's fine. We can just skip the next few pages. But uh, <laughs> uh, learning the application of the story of the wise men uh, can shape the way that we respond to Christmas. In fact, I fully believe that understanding the wisdom of the wise men is the first step to recapturing Christmas, uh, and I believe that understanding the foolishness of the wise men will allow Christmas to capture us. Uh, but I do get a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, before we can understand the wise men, we really need to understand where we are in our narrative, uh, and I think that starts with cheesy Christmas sayings. So a blog that I followed recently shared six things that are part of a holiday to-do list. Uh, Number one, see the lights. Number two, buy food. Number three, make cookies. Number four, buy presents. Number five, wrap presents. Uh, and number six, send presents. And on this blog, each of these things was edited to be a little more hopeful, a little more uh, in the Christmas spirit. So rather than see the lights, we need to be the light. Rather than buy food, we need to donate food. Uh, instead of making cookies, we need to make love. Instead of sending presents, we need to send peace. That's a little out of order. Uh, and instead of wrapping gifts, we should wrap somebody in a hug. But the, uh, the, ult the penultimate of Christmas cliches is instead of buying presents, we need to be present. Uh, it might be my millennial cynicism talking, but I hate these Christmas cliches. Uh, if you posted one over this Christmas season, uh, we can go have a little heart-to-heart -heart after service and just debrief it a little bit. That's fine. Um, but I love this, this difference between buying presents and being present. 
And what shocked me was how well this little sentence captured two aspects of our response to Christmas and how it indeed captured the actions of the wise men. And so today I want to share with you the three ways we can respond to the Christmas story. We can be present, we can buy presents, and we can recapture presents. And so before we get to each of these responses, let's figure out where we are in the story. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, we can jump into the scriptures. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there you can grab one from the seat back in front of you, or you can follow along on your phone. Uh, and if you're following along on your phone, then no one's allowed to judge you for being on your phone in church. So if you need to download a Bible, you can get one at bible.com app. And so Matthew chapter 2. We've just come out of Matthew chapter 1, obviously, and this is where the author lays out the genealogy of Christ, and he ties it into that of King David. And after we get the genealogy, we get a short, simple narrative about an angel coming to Joseph, uh, and then we get a verse, one verse about Jesus being born, and then we hit chapter 2. It's quite a simple story compared to some of the larger Christmas narratives in the other Gospels. And so here's Matthew 2, 1 to 9. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. So back in verse one, our author again points out this uh, Davidic lineage of Jesus. So we get this in the genealogy in chapter 1, and now it's again affirmed through the town that uh, Mary and Joseph went to, the descendants of David went to during the census. And so in Jewish culture, King David is kind of the ultimate king. I like it. It's a good name. Uh, Jesus' relationship to David is incredibly important throughout all of Matthew's gospel. And why is it important that we recognize the royal heritage of Jesus? It's because this occurred while Herod was king. Herod was the ruler of Israel who drew his authority from Rome. And so in the first verse of this chapter, we already have this tension between the Roman ruler of Israel and the descendant of Israel's greatest king. And now as the wise men enter the scene, they arrive in Jerusalem and they begin asking about the king of the Jews. And who are these men? Well, we get the term, or we get the term from the Greek magoi, translated as magi. You may have heard that word before. And these magi are priests and experts in mysteries. They're largely from Persia and Babylon in the east. Uh, the term had originally meant spiritual thinkers, but it kind of evolved. It meant astrologers, dream interpreters, uh, spiritual leaders, and those pursuing wisdom and magic. I don't know how many wise men there were. Oftentimes we say three, because perhaps of songs like We Three Kings, and that's popularized by the three gifts given towards the end of the chapter. But you know there's much more than three Three wise men arriving in Jerusalem would not have caused much of an uproar. Right? It is likely a caravan of people that arrived. There would have been many wise men accompanied by attendants and servants and camels. One scholar believed that there was closer to 300 people than to three. 
And so immediately after Matthew points out the tension between Jesus and Herod, this convoy of wise men enters into Jerusalem and goes, who's the king? Where's the king? The wise men claim to have followed a star. And considering that many would have been astrologers, this makes a lot of sense. To these great thinkers who spent their nights staring up at the sky, the appearance of a new star would have been a momentous occasion. What meaning could they derive from this heavenly body? What could it mean? And as they continue to stare at it night after night, they realize that it appears to be moving. And so they pick up and they begin to follow it. And it's likely that these magi had come into contact with the Jewish prophecies of a new king from writings that had remained in Babylon following the Jewish captivity. And so as they're following this star and it's heading, it's leading them westward, it's leading them right to Israel. And they realize that this must be the sign of the great king of the Jews. And to this ancient mind, this would have made a lot of sense. Why wouldn't the heavens signify the arrival of the great prophesied king who had come? Why wouldn't the cosmos declare the glory of this new ruler? And so this large convoy of magi begin to ask people, where's the king? Where's the new king? We have come to worship him. Where's the king that the stars are proclaiming? Where's the prophesied king of the Jews? And in the Bible, in Matthew 2, verse 3, it tells us that the people of Jerusalem are disturbed. Uh, in one translation, it says that Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And it's obvious why Herod was disturbed. Much like the authority of the steward of Gondor and Lord of the Rings, all of Herod's power came from Israel not having its own king. The arrival of a rightful king would spell end to his already shaky reign. See, Herod is not a nice guy. He's a, a Roman-aged Medici. He's like a mob boss. He was jealous, and he'd frequently off people who threatened him. He had bought, fought, killed, and manipulated his way into power. He had killed one of his wives, his mother-in-law, two brothers-in-law, and his own son to try and preserve his power. The Roman Emperor Augustus once joked that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's house than it was to be a son. Herod is fearful because he knows he is an usurper of the Jewish throne and that the arrival of this true king spells an end to his reign. The arrival of the prophesied king was also a threat to the religious establishment of Israel. Uh, the Pharisees who had sided with Rome to protect their own power were concerned about what would happen to them if this king arrived. And so our picture of this convoy is not a small trio of men, maybe madmen arriving going, oh, prophecy is fulfilled, where's the king? It is a large assembly of people entering town and telling them that their greatest political and religious threat has arrived. The Jews are disturbed not because they're fearful, or are disturbed because they're fearful of how Herod will react to this new threat. Right? The Jews are more afraid of political instability than they are excited for the arrival of Christ. But Herod is a cunning man, and he begins to scheme, to concoct a plan. He gathers the available priests, and he asks where the Christ would be born. And the Pharisees quote to him Micah 5.2. Bethlehem of You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. And so knowing that's Bethlehem, where this prophesied king of the Jews would be born, Herod sends the wise men on their way tells them to find the king, that, they, that he may come and worship them too. And we learn in the later half of this chapter that Herod is merely using the wise men to try and find the child king so that he can murder him. 
But it is in the wise men leaving Jerusalem and heading, to Israel, and heading to Bethlehem that we find our first response to the Christmas story, being present. Matthew 2, 9 to 11 says, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy, and entering the house, they saw the child. And so both Herod and the Pharisees remain in Jerusalem, and they let the wise men take the journey to find the king. After arriving in Bethlehem, they likely began a similar inquiry as they did in uh, Jerusalem until they can find Jesus. They go around going, oh, where's the king of the Jews? Have you seen this king? Where is he? And eventually they find the home that Mary and Joseph are staying in. And as it says in verse 11, they go into the house and they see the child with Mary. And what blows my mind about this part of the story, uh, it's not that they track down Jesus after all the searching. Uh, it's not that they followed a star across the continent to find the prophesied king. Uh, it's not that they wandered around town just asking people about this child king until someone finally was able to point them in the right direction. It's that not one of the Pharisees traveled the six miles from, Bethlehem, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see if the Messiah had truly arrived. That's not even 10 kilometers. I drove three times that distance to be here this morning. According to Google Maps, it's a two-hour walk. And maybe it's not in, great in this weather, but it's doable. Not one of the Pharisees, those who are experts in the law and the prophecy, would take time to walk two hours to check if any of this was true. And so right here, we have our first response to the Christmas story, the choice to be present. See, being present is a key step of response. And we need to be present not only with God in our devotions, but also with others. If we are searching out the physical presence of God by being in community, in the local church, or in small groups, we miss out. It says in Matthew 18, 20, that where two or more are gathered, I am there. When we put ourselves into the presence of others, we are putting ourselves in the presence of God. And if we aren't journeying along to find God, then we're missing out. See, if we hear the Christmas story, if we're confronted by the gospel that God has sent his son to die so that our debt can be paid and that we can have eternal life, if we hear that message and we remain where we are, then we live like the Pharisees. We miss out on what God has put right in front of us. We miss out on what we're already waiting for. We miss out on what is only a short journey away. Why would we not take the six-mile journey to be present? See, the Christmas story, the gospel story, is a story of a God who has left his heavenly home to be present with us. And in his death, he gives us the chance to be present with him. Why do we so often act like the Pharisees and remain where we are rather than traveling down the road? The second response that we can have to Christmas is to bring presents. And after arriving at the house, the wise men fall down on their knees to worship, and they present gifts to Jesus. Uh, we oftentimes think of Christmas gifts as a core piece of our Christmas tradition. In fact, the gifts we give at Christmas can in part be traced back to symbolism in the early church of giving gifts to symbolize this story and my most memorable Christmas gift I received when I was 12 years old. 
Uh, you might be thinking that it was a game console. Uh, I got a GameCube when I was younger, uh, a Wii, or a Rock Band, if you remember that game. Uh, one year I got a shirt that didn't fit that my parents made me give to my brother. Uh, <laughs> but it's not one of these gifts that has stood out of my memory as the most memorable gift. Because when I was 12, my aunt bought me Boggle Jr. Now, if you know the board game Boggle, uh, it is a word game. You have a bunch of dice that have letters on them, you spin them around, they land, and you have to try and spell words as fast as you can, uh, and whoever makes the most words wins. Uh, and Hasbro has this series of games that are junior games, so they're, they're simpler rules, they're simpler concepts, they're designed for kids so that they can learn. So, generally, uh, getting a junior game would, would be acceptable at 12. Uh, if you know me, you know I have a pretty substantial board game collection, um, but what's not in my collection? You see, at 12, you'd be at the top end of junior games. Uh, like, a 12-year-old could probably play regular Monopoly, but you'd probably need, like, an adult to help explain the rules. Um, but, you know, you'd still enjoy Monopoly Junior. So at 12, you could play a junior game. Uh, if you were a mature 12-year-old like myself, you, uh, you might think getting a junior game is a little childish, uh, but not enough to complain about it. Uh, however, unlike most of the junior games, Boggle Junior is not a game for, like, aged 5 to 12. It's, not, it's no Monopoly Junior. Uh, Boggle Junior is a game for five to six-year-olds to learn how to read. Uh, instead of searching for words in a puzzle, you arrange word blocks to spell words like dog and cat. <laughs> At 12 years old, I could read. <laughs> uh, I think the worst part was my parents made me say thank you. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what happened to that copy of Boggle Junior, but good riddance. All of this to say, Christmas gifts, both good and bad, are a major part of Christmas. Moving into Matthew 2.11, we see the first instance of a Christmas gift. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gold gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, it's been almost two years since the birth of Jesus. Uh, Mary and Joseph have remained in Bethlehem uh, because traveling the long road back to Nazareth would have been hazardous with an infant. And following the census ending, they found a room or uh, a house that they can stay in as opposed to the stable. Now, outside in Bethlehem, the wise men are going around asking about this Jewish king that they've seen in the stars. Uh, and the shepherds who encountered angels at Jesus' birth, which we talked about a few weeks ago, they had not kept quiet about it. And so after asking around town, the wise men are finally able to track down this house where Mary and Joseph are. They enter, they fall down on their knees, and they begin to worship this boy king. And it's doubtful that these quasi-religious pagan men understood the divine nature of Jesus. Right? They don't fall down and worship Jesus because he's divine, but they fall down and worship him because he's royal. And they open up and present these gifts to Jesus, as was typical of ancient royalty. They unpack gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, each of these gifts has a symbolic meaning, but it's likely the wise men brought them because they were valuable and precious uh, and were traditional gifts for someone royal. They open up and they present their gifts to Jesus. I said that one already. Yet with Jesus, we see so much more in these gifts. When they give gold, we see something of incredible value. Right? A metal that's existed since 3000 BC when the Egyptians started to use it as currency. To the ancient Greeks, gold was a social status symbol. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see the worship of golden idols. Johnson Hurst said that there was one common trend across all ancient civilizations. Gold is a status symbol. 
It's used to separate one class from another, right? From emperors and pri to priests to elites to upper middle class, those who held gold tended to have power. Gold represents royalty and kingship, fitting for him who was born and would die the king of the Jews. Frankincense was a special type of incense. It was burned on the altars as an offering to the gods. And we see in Exodus that frankincense was part of the offering in the tabernacle. In Exodus 30, 34, and 35, it says, The Lord says to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum resin, oincha, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. In Exodus 39, God instructs Aaron, the high priest, to not offer any incense, only that which is pure. And so while they may not recognize it themselves, the second of the gifts from the wise men represents Jesus' divinity. They give to him that which was burned to God himself. And lastly, we have myrrh. Myrrh is a valuable perfume. Uh, it's a human element. Uh, one of its primary uses was for the embalming of the dead. Myrrh is a representation of death and a representation of humanity. And so in one gift opening session, the wise men unknowingly acknowledge Jesus' royalty, his divinity, and his humanity. We can see the gospel in these gifts, the one who is royal and divine giving up those things in his death. And in response to the birth of Christ, the wise men worship. They worship through giving. And in response to what has been done for us through the Christmas story, we too are called to worship through giving. We give as we acknowledge Jesus' royalty, divinity, and humanity. Right, the wise men gave because it was customary to honor royalty. Those of us who have been captured by the Christmas story are called to give because we acknowledge that our authority is God and that all we have comes from him. We honor him in our giving. And so to live a life of worshipful giving, we're called to give out of our resources and out of our time. Starting with the financials, for the Jews, this is based in the Levitical tithe. Leviticus 27.32 speaks of this. Uh, and the concept is that since all belongs to God, you would give a tithe or one-tenth of what you have back to him. We also see the idea of the first fruits, meaning that it is the first 10% you give, not the last. In the New Testament, we see a progression from this 10% requirement of the law to this concept of giving. Jesus calls the rich man in Matthew 19 to give all that he has away. Uh, he commends the woman who gives very little because it is a sacrifice over the man who brings bags of coins in but does not miss what he has given away. Throughout the New Testament, we see this movement to giving both generously and sacrificially as part of the Christian life, as part of our response to the Christmas story. We can also give of our other greatest resource, time. In response to the Christmas story, we have the opportunity to give of our time by serving others and by serving the church. And that might mean different things for each of us. Uh, it might mean committing to children's ministry once a month to help out. Uh, it may mean setting up the road signs and the parking lot signs on Sunday mornings. Each of us is called to serve, and each of us is called to give. And so the wise men arrive, they worship and give their gifts to honor the king of the Jews, and then they go on their way. It's not actually that simple. They have a dream warning them to go around Jerusalem and go home another way to prevent Herod from finding Jesus and finish his scheme of offing him. But the wise men leave. They've been present. 
They've given presents, but they miss out on the most important thing. We've seen the wisdom of the wise men as they have traveled and as they have recognized Christ's royalty. But in this moment, we see the foolishness of the wise men. See, the most important part of our response to the Christmas story, it's not about being there, it's not attending church, it's not being in a small group, it's not about giving with finances or giving with serving. The most important part of our response to the Christmas story is recapturing the presence of God. God's presence is the game changer at Christmas. Anyone can decorate, anyone can have gifts, uh, anyone theoretically can make a turkey and sing songs. But it's only in a baby born 2,000 years ago that we experience God's presence. Some of you may have thought that the wise men were successful in their endeavor. They did, in fact, find the king of the Jews. Uh, In many ways, the author is forcing us to identify with these Gentile non-believers over the religious leaders. But even if we wrestle with the tension between the wise men who were present and gave and the Pharisees who didn't even walk the six-mile journey, we miss the point. Many of us will applaud the wise men because even without this religious understanding, they found and they worshiped Jesus. Uh, we can have a similar attitude in our daily lives, right? We applaud people that are moral and ethical because they have similar conclusions as us, right? People who have morals that have come from thought instead of from God's ideals. But the end goal of Christmas was never about the actions that we would take in response. Often we spend our entire lives focused on being and focused on giving, and we miss out on the God right in front of us. Many Christians are so caught up in the pursuit of morality, of wisdom, of relevance, that they become like the Pharisees. They're more concerned with peace and the law and prophecy than they are with the Jesus just down the road. And I'll admit that I've been this person. Uh, I've distilled my Christianity to attendance and to a commitment, uh, to saying the right things, to dressing the right way, uh, to confessing safe sins in groups so that people know I'm not perfect, but they really don't know like, how bad I am. Right, we settle for action over an encounter. Uh, we settle for the law when we could have new life. We settle for being present in the temple and giving our tithes when we have the opportunity to encounter the God who's created the universe. We look forward to the conquering king who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire when we have the opportunity to encounter the man who has conquered sin and death for all people. We will settle for presence when we could have God's presence. And I'll invite the worship team to come up as I close. I don't mean to say that being present or giving presence is bad. In fact, I think each of these response elements is a key piece to developing a relationship with God. Being present and giving presence might be the next step for you. But if your response is coming out of a motivation for action and not a motivation of pursuing God's presence, then you're missing out. And so as we leave the Christmas story, and as we sit on the cusp of New Year, I want to challenge each of us to look at the three responses to the Christmas story. Perhaps 2019 is the year that you need to work on being present. And not just present so that you're noticed, but present to experience the God working around you. Maybe it's time to commit to being at church every single week instead of every other. Maybe it's time to join a Sunday class 
and learn more about God. Maybe it's time to join a small group and journey with others. Maybe it's time to take your small group to the next level. Maybe it's time you look at the friendships around you and realize you need to pursue something deeper. For others of you, this might be a year to give, and not just to give out of obligation, but to give as an act of submission to God. It might mean that you have to commit to giving regularly. It might mean it's time to increase how much you're giving. Uh, maybe it means that this is the year you need to get control of your finances so that you have the ability to give. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it means that you need to adjust your schedule so you can serve. Maybe it means once a week you go downtown to help out at the mustard seed. Maybe it means emailing Kelsey and seeing about how you can help out in eKids or learning how you can help with painting and building revitalization projects. And maybe this is the year that you need to recapture God's presence. Maybe your experience with church has become stale because it's motivated or it's self-motivated and what you really need is a fresh experience of God's presence. Maybe that means starting a new devotional plan. Maybe it means committing to reading the Bible in a whole this, the whole Bible in a year. Maybe it means spending more time in prayer. Maybe it means raising your hands just a little bit as we worship or singing out loud as we worship. And in just a moment, the team's going to lead us in three songs. And as our team is leading us in, us in this extended time of worship, I want us to reflect on what our response will be. And as we sing this first song, we're going to sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And while God is already present in the room, we sing this to say, God, we welcome you here. God, we want to encounter you. We want you to move among us, not just to be present, but to engage with your presence. We want to live our, our Christianity. We want to live out of dry action, but we want to live out of a desire to recapture your presence. Tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves When my heart becomes free and my shame is undone Your presence, Lord Holy Spirit 